0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. It began with two chugging steam locomotives. School car number one and school car number two. They were also known as school trains and schools on wheels.
2: coach could be fitted out as a classroom on wheels. Instead of the children going to the school, the school would come to the children.
1: It was an unprecedented collaboration between Ontario's then Ministry of Education and the railways, Canadian National and Canadian Pacific, that lasted four decades from 1926 to 1967.
2: And if it could do one community, well, it could travel on 10, 20, 50 or 100 miles and serve other communities.
1: At the height of the program, seven school cars traveled up and down the tracks of northern Ontario to the isolated children of railway workers, trappers, loggers, and hunters.
3: We didn't have no fridge or television or nothing like that. Groceries, they'd come in uh, every two weeks with uh, the train when it came in.
1: The steam trains delivered food, medicine, and occasional news from the outside world to Northern Ontario. Now they'd be bringing teachers, lessons, and books. Some students just had to walk out of the house and cross the tracks to get to the school car. Others had to use skis, snowshoes, and dog sleds.
4: We had a dog team of about five sleigh dogs, and... uh, We had an eight-foot toboggan, and we'd just get on, and they'd go, and they knew the trail. And then on the lakes, we'd put branches up and mark the the trail across the lake, because very often the wind would blow your trail over with snow.
1: The school car was the brainchild of school inspector J.B. McDougall.
2: One day, he happened to see a switching train push some railway service cars into a spur. And the idea suddenly struck him.
1: That's the voice of the late William Wright, who served as a school car teacher for 39 years, recorded for the CBC in 1978.
2: This railway that sort of shackles these families to the rails can be used as a means of bringing education to the children.
1: The first two trains departed on a September night in 1926 from the grounds of the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto. One train carried teacher Walter McNally and headed for North Bay. The other carried Fred Sloman and his young family to Sudbury and then further north to Folliette and Capriole. This documentary by Aliza Siegel explores an early experiment in remote education, homeschooling, and nation-building.
5: Les school trains. voici J'ai été littéralement, par les school trains. The school train.
6: We have finally arrived. I was struck utterly by the school trains. Mon nom est Justine Saussier, je suis
5: romancière et je suis l'auteur du roman Attrin perdu. My name is Justine Saussier, I'm a novelist, and I'm the author of In Miles to Go Before I Sleep, a novel in which the school dreams take a big part. Collision frontale avec des granagères, une fascination qui m'a tenue dans un état
6: d'alerte pour tout ce qui les concernait a head-on collision with major damage, a fascination that kept me in a state of alertness around
7: anything to do with them. My name is Iona Peterson. I live in Sudbury, Ontario. I'm 93 years old. I was born in rural Ontario. It's R-U-E-L, which is a little town town between Folliat and Capriol. And this is where the school car was running at the time that I was born. There was a post office and a little store and a railway station. It was a stop for lumber workers working in the bush. My mother, she worked at home while my father worked in the lumber company in the North, between Folliot and uh, Ru, and he would be gone for three weeks at a time or longer in the camps, then come out for a week to us and then go back in the logging camps again.
8: There was nothing there, no school it just people that worked on the railroad, so you'd go to school on the school car at that time. It was the only option that we had to learn my name is marcel constantine i'm 74 years old and i was on the school car in 1956 1957 i was living in rural ontario with my family my mother my father and six siblings beside myself I belong to the Chiching Nation on Manitoulin Island. My father was from Quebec, Quebecois, and my mother was indigenous and came from Gogama, Ontario. My father worked for Canadian National Railroad. We're in the bush. There's trees. There's railroad tracks, and there's a short railroad track just for the school car.
3: The school car came to Palomar just to teach my brother and myself, and uh, in the later years, my sister. Fred Sloman uh, was the teacher and he was the, the same teacher that taught my father in Groundhog many years prior. My name is Raymond Bromley. I attended the school car in uh, 1952 in Palomar, Ontario, which was approximately 12 miles east of Foliette, Ontario, approximately um, 136 miles west of Capriel which is 20 miles from Sudbury. We lived in the bush in Palomar. Well, there there was nothing but bush. (laughs) My mother and father and uh, my brother and uh, one trapper and uh, two section men that worked for my father on the railroad. That was it. (laughs) I mean, it was nothing but trees, you know, uh, all around. And uh, we would... uh, Cut our wood in the summer, and uh, we would uh, prepare it for winter. That was the extent of it. We had a rabbit line in the winter time, and we'd snare rabbits. And we we had a little lake uh, not far from us where we used to shovel it off and make a rink, and uh, then we would play hockey with the two of us. My mom was from Folliot. And my father was from Groundhog, which was an, another four miles east of uh, Palomar. They were both born in Canada, and uh, they ended up there because my father was the, the, the section foreman on the railroad for the CN. He had to maintain a, a smooth surface for the the trains to, to go on. Dad
9: worked on the railroad
3: for 42 years.
9: My name is Bob Bell, and uh, my father was one of the teachers on the school car that ran between Chapleau and Carche. I lived for five years on school car number one. Uh, as a youngster, on my seventh birthday, I became a student on this uh, school car where we moved from Carche to Chaplo in a series of stops, seven to be exact. At the end of the seven weeks, we would pick up groceries in uh, Chapel, and a uh, freight train would haul us back to the original spot where my father would teach for one week. Each week, my uh, father would tell the way freight to pick us up and take us to another stop. Some of these stops had as many as 12 students. Others would only have three to five students. A minimum was uh, to have three students to uh, facilitate the stop for that particular place.
7: The school car would be on the siding. They have two double tracks, so they can put the school car on a siding track. We'd cross the road, and then we had to cross three or four double tracks, double railroad tracks, and then down the path to the school car. It was hard getting up there. You kind of crawled up.
2: In you go, you're late.
7: Fred Sloman was the teacher. Fred Sloman. The first school car
6: teacher on the Canadian National Line, speaking to his students in school car number one, in
2: 1931. Where's where's Jimmy?
6: It was recorded by the Fox Movietone Corporation for release at the time in theaters across Canada and the United
10: States. Over the hill. Where's Jimmy? And his wife Celia, the thousand miles of. Bush Country was our schoolyard. We had lots of playgrounds, trees and shade and rocks and streams. They were
7: such nice people and they had little girls and uh, we would get to play with them. The teacher had his quarters
5: on the train. Three
6: tiny rooms with the modern comforts of the times. A kitchen, a bathroom, and a central space that, depending on the hour, served as a sitting room, dining room, or bedroom.
7: We walked in up the stairs, and Mr. Sloman had his desk at the front. They had desks on both sides, like you would in a regular coach.
9: It was a made-over passenger train, so it was... uh about 10 or 12 feet wide, and I believe about 62 feet long. There was a classroom, which would be about a third of the size of the passenger car. My parents had a living room, bedroom, and then at the very end, there was a small kitchen. There were a total of 12 desks. My sister and myself had rollaway beds where they were kept at the back of the classroom. And in the, uh, after the everyone had gone, in the evening, we would bring these rollaway beds and set them down beside the students' desks. And uh, the beds would be made up, and that's where we slept. We had to carry water. The water sometimes had to be carried a great distance, and it would be kept in large pails, which we used for drinking and for cooking, and the uh, bathing, where we had to heat it on a wood stove or a coal stove. On a uh, Saturday, we would have a bath. Every morning, the day would start with the singing of God Save the King.
8: That's another thing he taught us, how to sing God Save the King or Queen.
9: And then there would be the Lord's Prayer, and then we would sit down and get started with our regular lessons.
3: First day I went to school, my parents told me to listen to my brother. So my brother says, Ring the bell. So I got up and I rang the bell. The teacher escorted me by my ear right back to my desk and told me to sit there. And then he gave me a note to bring to my parents. But I stuck the note underneath rocks. I didn't give it to them. So around Christmas time, the teacher was out there with us making a, an archway over the walkway. And he come across this piece of paper. And he said to me, it looks like you forgot to give this to your father, Raymond. So <laughs> I had no choice but give it to him then. It, it wasn't a laugh at the time.
11: The creation of the school cars was prompted by this general notion that schools needed to reach the population of Ontario or or Canada, no matter where these students were. My name is Theodore Christou. I am a professor of history of education at Queen's University in the Faculty of Education. The school cars were part of a broader effort that included, for instance, correspondence schooling, reaching students in the north who either uh, due to physical or uh, other reasons, could not attend some of the other school buildings. And this was a period that I've referred to as a progressivist period. And many of our scholars have called it progressivist because it's it represented a kind of an unfettering from the Victorian model of schooling that had preexisted, A kind of a, a model of education that was considered to be passive because it focused on sitting and passively learning materials only to be regurgitated or to be uh, remembered for examinations, that uh, the uh, criticism of Victorian schools was also that they lacked any kind of connection to the world as it is today. In other words, that they were preparing students for a world that had already passed. And that and the third element of progressivism was focusing on the individual. Uh, as opposed to this this curriculum or these texts that had been passed on. And the themes of progressive education are very alive today. We see them in curriculum documents focusing on inquiry. We see them in the reports of government officials and in school journals. So in the rhetoric of education, we've we've been fascinated with this idea of progress. And in post-World War I Ontario, the idea of expanding what schools could do and the reach of schools, I think, crystallized in this idea of, of the school trains, which were almost like a very image itself of technology, of progress, of industry, of connecting this country from coast to coast. And so outfitting trains as classrooms was seen as this really novel experiment.
4: There wasn't any roads those days. Little Denji in
6: 1978.
4: And they had to paddle down if they wanted to go the school car, like in open water, four miles to the railroad. And then you either go through the bush and take a porridge like, or you can go right to the railroad track and then walk down the railroad track to Cucutus. And then in the winter, of course, they either toboggan or snowshoed or skied down. We'd have to tie up our dog team uh, to the trees uh, outside the school car there and leave them there for the day.
6: Betty Etier.
4: We often heard and saw wolves on the lake when we were going, and uh, we'd try to get back before it got dark.
3: Well, I can tell you one thing. You didn't have no slack time. There was more hands-on because it was just, uh, uh, at one point, there was just my brother and I, so... Fred Sloman. He would go and spend you know fifteen twenty minutes with one, and then fifteen twenty minutes with the other one, and then recess time, and lunch was twelve to one, and not one minute after either. It was one o'clock. You you be there
8: on the school car. Most of it was arithmetic, geography, spelling. We'd have spelling bees.
7: Spelling was very important. Arithmetic. I can remember doing science. I do remember geography a lot. And we did learn a lot about uh, Canadian history more than any other history. He would teach us stuff that we should know about living in the wild. He'd teach us about
8: the environment.
7: A lot about nature and how things grow and animals different kind of animals that uh, we had in our in rural trees and that was all our life of course
8: Mr. Sloman taught us about life in the bush because we were in the bush uh, he used to bring us outside and we'd spend our time outside doing things to be around a fire how to make fire. It teaches about the snow. It teaches about the weather. Anything to do with northern Ontario. About the railroad.
3: He used to tell stories at night. It, it was fantastic. All different uh, type of stories about uh, different people uh, along the line, and uh, you know the trapping experiences, and it really got our attention.
9: I saw a and up the wall, I saw his
2: tail, and that was all. Who knows their funny recitation? Well, give us yours, please.
7: The boys stood on the railroad track, the train is coming fast. Yeah. The train got off the railroad track, the left
2: the boy go fast.
3: Good. Yours. He was good at building confidence. He would give you something to talk about and... You didn't have the answer. Well, you had to find the answer. Well, you had to do some reading, and he would give you some books, and you had to come out with a an essay saying what you've learned and what you've picked up out of that book.
4: The thing about the school car, you were it was parked quite close to the main line of the CN. And you'd be sitting there, and it used to get him a little bit mad. He'd be nicely into a lecture or telling you something, and a big freight train would come by when you couldn't hear a thing. <laughs> and they used to, it was steam engines then, and they'd be blowing at him. It was...
3: It's a chugging sound. eh? Like I, I can still hear it in my mind. And uh, it's the steam coming out of the, the engine. So he would stop and uh, stop teaching until the train went by. He would carry on from there. God, you know, this is uh, over 70 years ago.
9: <laughs> to me, it was normal. I knew nothing else. It was a, uh, that was the way life was then. Uh, we went out on a train every week. We moved. The train would come and pull us to another stop. And my father would teach and I would uh, go to school on the school car. I had both my parents and uh, it was a reasonably happy life. I had no sports. Uh, I used to ski a great deal. And, uh, but that was about it. I missed out because there was no radio, no, nothing like that. We were too far away for radio. We did not get a paper even. I knew very little about the outside world. The National Geographic was a godsend because we were able to see pictures of the outside world then.
5: A freight train would pull the car over a distance.
6: Leave it on a siding in the middle of the forest from which emerged a group of children who, for a few days, would learn reading, writing, and arithmetic. Until another train came to take it to where other children awaited it. And they would stay one week.
8: And then he would give us homework for the next three weeks.
6: All
2: right, now the freight engine will be coming in a few minutes to take the car up to mile 92. I'll be back in one month. Oh, maybe two or three days more than one month, but I want your homework done, please. And do it a little bit neater, will you, Charles? Yes. A little bit better than
7: before. The local train would pick the school car up and take them on to the next uh, little town on the railroad. And they would stay a week there and then move on to the next one. When we
10: passed to the next mileage point, Everybody stood with with tears in their eyes, and and we were sad, too, to leave them. But we always knew we were coming back again.
8: Mr. Sloman would give us homework. If he was gone for three weeks, so we'd do homework for three weeks. My mother would, would help us.
7: It was almost like homeschooling because you had your work given to you before they left, and when you come back, that work should have been done
3: but you had to do that at home. He had his ways of getting everybody to produce. My brother and I, we always had our work done.
9: It was always done. There was never a question about whether it was left out, homework was finished, and then some.
1: You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely
10: heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. And of course, it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes
1: wherever you get your podcasts. From 1926 to 1967. The school cars, passenger trains converted into schools on wheels, chugged along the railway tracks of northern Ontario, where children living in the province's isolated bush couldn't get to school, so school was brought to the children.
5: The school train was much more than a school. Lecture, lecture, calculus
6: It was where they offered evening classes for adults, reading, writing, and on Canadian democratic institutions for immigrants. A doctor came
5: twice a year. They had bingo nights,
6: radio evenings, particularly during the war.
10: No one had had light... When the sun went down, the little shacks, just one kerosene lamp on a table, and that was all. And we had lots of light when we came. And so everybody loved to see the school car with its lights coming.
7: Everybody was happy, and that was very exciting for everybody, that was a big deal. We waited for that train to roll into town, we did. It was a big excitement.
3: My father had to make a a place on the track, on the the siding, for the school car to park. And it was a piece of track that was just specifically for the the school car.
9: The school car would be welcomed by the kids running up alongside and ready to uh, greet us as uh, we uh, came into that particular stop. Oh, they came racing up as soon as they saw the school car come in. They'd come ripping over.
8: Sometimes he'd arrive on a Sunday. We used to run down, go see Mr. Sloman. Then he'd tell us, Monday morning, school starts. I knew when the school car would arrive, I knew we were going to learn something that week, which I loved. We always loved going to the school car. We loved it. All I remember is Mr. Sloman being a good teacher, his wife. Mr. Sloan was the teacher. Mrs. Sloman was the keeper of the car.
10: It was a gala week. The, the week that we were at each little siding.
8: She was always cooking. You could smell it on the in the car.
10: I've made millions of cookies, I think, to serve and coffee.
7: It was like uh, Christmas. Christmas every three to me without the gifts. But the gift was to have these lovely people to be with us.
3: They had a pet skunk that they used to carry with them on the train for a pet. The skunk was there when my father was going to school, and uh, he was still there when uh, I was uh, going to school.
7: When I think of the school car, I think happiness right away. I think, oh, the school car is coming. And um, when I walked in there, I, I felt secure i felt special and i felt that this was a very special occasion this one week of having these lovely people with the kids it was like a visitor more than a, a teaching at the end of the day we had to clean up clean up the boards make sure the books were all packed in our desks and made sure that the place was left tidy before we left the school. Because the evening time, they would have bingo games, and they would have silent movies and uh, little gatherings uh, for the people in the town.
10: We've had perhaps 60 people in the school car in one evening for a picture show run on our old, our old car battery. We had no electricity. We didn't know there were so many people in the bush. They seemed to come from nowhere.
7: I think the big thing was the excitement of having something different and having somebody else come into town and something to do. The children would flood flood a river for
10: skating and we'd take the gramophone out to the to the river and they, once or twice they had a dance out on the on the river on the ice. With wolves howling in the background,
7: they would explain to us things that happened in the big city that we never knew anything about. And I didn't really come to a city until I was twelve years old, actually. so all everything was also new to me. We lived a very uh, I guess you'd call sheltered life, but happy life.
11: So this is also a period of generally mass uh, immigration to Canada. Uh, Three million had come into the country between 1894 and, and the start of the 20th century, largely moving to remote uh, regions. Education as a portfolio was so important that the premier of Ontario was up until uh, 1934, also the Minister of Education. So this is, this is some, some of the importance of education for building, I think, th- this idea of an educational state or building the idea of what Ontario could be, was, was reaching out to these new Ontarians and, uh, and Ontarians who were not living primarily in that golden horseshoe from Hamilton to Oshawa that had been developed largely with the automobile industry. This is also a period where it's just noting automobiles, where in 1916, we know that half of the vehicles on the road were were horse and buggy, right alongside automobiles. So, so the marks of technology and the marks of progress were all over society. Um, and yet schools seem to remain um, remarkably unchanged from the traditional Victorian model that had been inherited Um, a kind of a learning that was focused on on textbooks, a kind of learning that was focused on the past and a kind of uh, learning that was focused on bringing together Canadians with a shared knowledge and shared history. So reaching students in the north was absolutely imperative, I believe, to um, premiers of this province and also, I believe, the government. Not only to be able to stand firmly and say that education was able to reach uh, more Ontarians than it had in the past, but also because school served a fundamental socializing purpose, helping to realize some of the aims of Anglo conformity. 90% of the learners enrolled in the classes were children who were new to Canada, but of course their parents and their families. We even have a reference to older family members who might've been uncles or aunts or grandparents, engaging in some of the learning that came when the trains would come into a community and the teacher would then have the opportunity to engage with that community.
10: The section men who couldn't read or write, they came nights and they, in one week, could write their name on the, on the board and they'd grip the pen until the blood would be running from their hands. They'd grip the pen so hard. Everybody wanted to do something, so there was no effort to teach anybody.
11: So the learner, the student engaged in the learning, I believe, was seen to be, to some extent, a sort of a light for the rest of their family and, and, and others who could play an educational role in supporting others' learning. So absolutely the 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 justification in many cases for the schools was that not only were the students engaged in the learning served but also their families and other members of the community this remains an important part of how we do education today is by bringing children together we're bringing together families
5: decorum discipline jack
6: decorum order discipline, and fervor. Every morning, he would raise the Union Jack at the back of the car to greet the children of the woods. La Washed, brusque. hair brushed and braided, Le and in their best clothes,
5: aussi, they were also
6: dressed up in honour of the day of school. They were 7, 8, 12,
5: sometimes 3 or 4. Certains were at the beginning of the D'autres pouvaient décliner les noms de tous les premiers ministres depuis
6: l'acte constitutionnel. They numbered seven, eight, twelve, sometimes only three or four. Some of them were just learning the alphabet. Others could list all the prime ministers since Confederation. Certains arrivaient d'Ukraine ou de Yougoslavie. Some had just arrived from Ukraine or Yugoslavia. Others had never seen anything but the forest where they were born. In It was a mixed-grade, multi-ethnic class, with a teacher mindful of each one of them.
7: We had in that little town many Polish people and Italians, Italian immigrants and immigrants working on the uh, train tracks, a section gang, they called them. And a lot of them couldn't speak English, and they had their wives with them, and they couldn't speak English. Well, this Fred Sloman would have classes at night sometimes to teach teach them English. So they, uh, they learned to speak fairly well, and uh, it made for a, a better understanding of everybody in the town.
2: The Royal Canadian Mounted Police has charge of espionage investigation
9: and checks on evidence following revelations by a Soviet embassy cipher clerk.
2: This is Drew Pearson with a flash from Washington. Canada's Prime Minister Mackenzie King has informed President Truman of a very serious situation affecting our relations with Russia. A Soviet agent surrendered some time ago to Canadian authorities and confessed a gigantic
11: Russian... We know that many of the students who were engaged in the railway school car project were recent immigrants from Europe. And that the focus of instruction was primarily on literacy, but not exclusively. That included elements of what we might call today citizenship education you know so the idea of of schooling as as civic formation is essential and particularly for immigrant populations at a time between the two wars you know so bolshevism the ideas of communism and socialism were to some extent as frightening in Canada as they were in the United States particularly around popular rhetoric
0: so long as communism threatens the very existence of democracy the United States must remain strong enough to support those countries of Europe which are threatened with communist Prime Minister
9: Mackenzie King disclosing a sensational spy plot hurls an international bombshell. That plant did work on the atomic bomb at Deep River, Ontario. And in the story, that radio experimental station figures, wartime precautions for secrecy were taken.:
11: We have a wonderful quote from a minister from the Minister of Education George S. Henry, that Bolshevik propaganda finds no place or acceptance wherever the school car operates. There's no doubt that the next generation will fall naturally into their place as loyal citizens. We also see that these schools are referred to as wholesome Canadianizing influences or um, means of establishing history values and enforcing a kind of civic life that conforms to this notion of British Anglo-conformity within the Canadian context. And so combating Bolshevism, infusing the spirit of democratic learning or democratic uh, ways of governance, but particularly also the sense of what it means to be a Canadian within the sense of the Commonwealth, was embedded in the curriculum of schools, whether they were railway school cars or they were, they were schools that we could find in Toronto. So the school car was, according to Premier Howard Ferguson, adding its quota to the loyal and intelligent citizenship of Ontario. We know of one student, for instance, named Joseph Ruffo, who was referred to as, quote, a little Italian, who came to this country in the spring after only 12 weeks of learning. He learned English and thus was able to be kind of woven into the fabric of what it meant to be a Canadian. So yes, schools helped to educate children who were not in urban centers, who may have had physical or other uh, obstacles that prohibited them from attending school, that we would bring the schools to them. But they also served an assimilationist end, which we know is derived from a sense of Anglo-conformity within a sense of being British in Canada and being part of the British Commonwealth. And schools, to some extent, continue to be criticized for the same reason.
7: We had Indigenous people living in our town, and uh, they mostly all spoke English. They did speak their language also, and they did have some of their ways that they lived also that was a little different. But we all got got along well together and uh, enjoyed each other and played together.
0: Many of these young people during the last few years of the operation of the school car were from Indian families.
6: Former school car teacher Philip Fraser on CBC Radio in 1978.
0: By agreement, the Indian sold his treaty rights for a certain cash payment. This payment, in a lump sum, enabled the family to buy certain things, perhaps an outboard motor, uh, and boat, or uh, things like that. And then, once they had spent their money, all their privileges enjoyed under the treaty were gone. They could not send their children to Indian school and almost a generation grew up in certain areas without being able to go to school. When we found this out, we uh, made application with the department to make other stops.
11: We have a record of two children who
9: camped out waiting for the school to come. It a place called Rideout, where indigenous children had come out of the woods in order to um, go to school, and had uh, set up a tent, including the fall and winter. They put up a tent and they lived there so they could come to school that week. And the
11: Minister of Education, who was also the Premier of Ontario, Howard Ferguson, notes this, quote, Two boys, living far from the railway line, journeyed 40 miles to the car, set up an old tent in midwinter, thatched it with balsam boughs,
9: and lived in it while the car was near." Then after the week was over, they went back to their homes, which would be farther away in the bush and impossible to get to the tracks, you know, every day.
2: Well, I promised to show you the goldfish. Who was it that had never seen the goldfish? We'll take a look. Here's the mystery. You have to go past because the engine's coming. I'll, I'll leave it here. Now if the train doesn't come, you can see it again.
7: Mr. Sloman, to me, was like a father. He was somebody very special.
3: I think he was very honest, he was very fair, and he was firm.
7: Very kind, very soft-spoken, and he seemed to know so much. And no matter what you asked him, he always answered you with such a wonderful explanation. And Mr. Sloman treated you like you were somebody. Everybody was important to him.
8: Mr. Sloman was a good teacher, and we loved him dearly. I still do. They taught us about life. They taught us how to live.
7: Mr. Sloman has given me the idea that if you want to do something in this world, you can. And he's made me a more understanding person of the uh, language barrier and how to treat people so that they feel they're part of Canada. He treated immigrants just as he would treat us. Always a smile, always happy to see you. And never, I don't ever remember him giving a crossword. We're always just so very happy to see him in that. And I feel so grateful to him and his Family for doing this. It must have been awfully inconvenient teaching and bringing up a family on a train and moving from place to place. And him and her to do it with such grace and happiness that I think he's left a a real spot in the, the life of history of people, him and all the others that have done the same thing as he has. You know, I've been living a long time. I mean, that's history gone by, and it's possible it could be now because with uh, the way people are teaching from home and teaching with all the stuff they have to teach, it it just kind of boggles your mind. It's going back, (laughs) going back to old, old times. It's almost like, to me, it's like homeschooling now. Well, it was almost like homeschooling. For three weeks, you were homeschooled. And now a lot of people are doing homeschooling. They now call it remote learning. But it's the same, almost the same thing. You have to govern yourself to do your work and get it done.
11: The school cars are indicative of kind of a, a universal trend that as we are as we are finding ways to educate, as we're finding ways to, to improve schooling in, in diverse and in multiple avenues, that the solutions are almost always unique and local, that the railway school cars are a uniquely Ontarian solution to the challenges of educating a broader population. This is a story that is embedded in the very life and history of this province and the people who've lived in it.
7: I think I was very lucky I learned a lot of things, how to get along with other people, what to appreciate in life, little things that we take for granted that we should be so thankful for without the school car being there, we would not have had any schooling. We did move from rural to Chinaga because. That way we could go to school every day, and uh, we had a one-room school in Tainaga, so we finished our schooling there. Why did the program
6: come to an end?
11: 1960s Ontario was no longer 1920s Ontario, and, and the population was not the same population. It was not located in the same places. More and more, we were seeing that the population of Ontario was moving into urban centres and into towns and cities where educational opportunities and schools were already established. And so the urbanization of Ontario continued unabated, and, and so the school population that would have been served by these school cars had dwindled to next to nothing.
2: The end could be seen approaching because the railway was making changes. Conditions were changing. Uh, Roads were being built, uh, in some cases uh, beginning as logging roads but being continually improved. And in that way, it was possible to bus children out to bigger schools, particularly when it came necessary to go to high school. These railway sections that had been six miles long had become 20 miles long, where they had used a pump-type motor car. Now they were using gasoline-powered cars, and telegraphers were uh, being replaced by the central traffic control system. So those families were being moved out. By
11: 1967, once novel, The School on Wheels... These remarkable technological innovations seem like relics from the past. The railway school cars were no longer considered an aspect of modernity. Modernity had moved on to using new technologies such as the telephone and the television to reach students. The trains were now seen as costly, I think
10: inefficient, and most certainly outdated. They were running short on teachers. Fred stayed three years after his retirement date. Just because we didn't want to leave the children... There was no one anxious to go and stay in the isolated north.
11: Maybe the most important legacy of the school cars, it's how it transformed families' and individuals' lives. And I think we are bound by these stories. These stories are what make us. Not only the kind of curriculum of the schools, but the kinds of stories that we share when we're engaged in learning. The vision of reaching all people and offering them an opportunity to become literate, to become fluent with numbers, to be able to apply their learning and to be able to build community as they do it. These are things that we all yearn for. And we know the power of education to change lives, broadening opportunities, allowing students and families to see more than what they might have otherwise seen. A truly democratic education can do is to reach all people no matter where they are.
2: An ordinary looking freight train pulls up against an ordinary looking backdrop and follows the ordinary procedure of uncoupling one car. Ordinary looking school children from grade one to second year high head for an unusual railway car which acts as an itinerant school in the north. Symbolic of Canada itself, education in Ontario is literally rolling the frontier ever northward.
11: Educational research often proceeds in two ways. One is experimenting, figuring out what works. Will this float? Will it work or not? Let's see. They didn't know whether these railway school cars would work or not. And so I think today we ought to continue to experiment with new modes and and means of learning, as we have sometimes done in the the virtual world and throughout the pandemic, but continuously to experiment and, and never to presume that we know the best way in which we ought to school or we ought to educate all people
7: to me when when you say the school car i have a good feeling inside that i was able to experience the school car and and that i was part of that I was part of those people's lives. I'm happy for that.
6: La du train, la nostalgie du de ces qui The nostalgia of the train. The nostalgia of the whistle of those powerful beasts.
7: I'm very happy to have been part of it. I I feel very honored that I was around at that time. It's nice thinking of all those things. Uh, It brings you back. It's been such a long time ago that it was a good start for my life. I have good memories. I have good memories. When I see it, a picture of it, or I just feel home, just a homey feeling like, oh yeah, that's, that, that, that's home. That, that's, that's my life. That's where I started. Goodbye.
4: This time. Bye,
2: Goodbye, girls.
4: Bye, no,
2: nine o'clock sharp. Don't that, be late. <laughs>
1: You were listening to a documentary about Canada's school trains, produced by Aliza Siegel. Special thanks to Bonnie Sitter. Thanks also to Palmiro Campagna, Zoel de Chatelet, Fred Tiolis, and Dale Wilson, to Benjamin Singleton and the University of South Carolina's Moving Image Research Collection, to the late Carl Schusler, and to Kate Zeeman and Bob Rempel of CBC Library and Archives. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed.